0: Quick recap of our previous session Last session we discussed which hadith hmm. what's, the, uh, what's, the, what's the actual what's the narration itself Yeah, that's right. The Prophet said to the person that sought advice from him, don't become angry. And so we said that this um, the sunnah, it comes with, a, with guidelines about this emotion of anger and how to deal with it. So who can remember what are the guidelines that the sunnah comes with as far as this emotion of anger is concerned? Stay away from... Okay, so yeah. So when the Prophet, said, do not become angry, what does that mean? Does it mean that the actual emotion of anger, you're not allowed to have that? That is natural. That is is an emotion that is inescapable. So yes, when the Prophet says, don't become angry, what he means is, don't expose yourself to those means, those avenues, those causes that will lead you to becoming angry. But then the actual anger management program that is outlined in the Sunnah consists of steps Step number one Mm. The tongue and the limbs, yep, so that comes that's in relation to when you're actually angry But the actual program of how to deal with with the anger is two steps one step is before you ever even get angry and then the second is when you get angry itself and that's what you're talking about so before you even get angry what's that about ah. adorn yourself beautify yourself with what good characteristics good characteristics like patience like not being hasty like being thoughtful and deliberate and so on and so forth so that is a character that you should develop obviously prior to becoming angry, it's something that you have to work on, it takes weeks, months, years to develop that character once you've developed that type of character then when you're in a situation where the average Joe might get angry and express his anger you're not going to get angry though why? because you've already disciplined yourself and cultivated yourself with beautiful characteristics such that now when you're faced with a situation that would usually get a person angry you're not getting angry. Why? Because the character it, it allows you to not get angry it allows you not to react to the impulse of anger. So that's before the situation of anger becoming angry arises. How about now once a situation of you becoming angry has arisen. How about now where you are faced uh, you are put in a circumstance where you are becoming angry. What do you do now? How many things are, uh, go under this, under this category? Two. Okay, number one. Okay, so we've got two. One that's related to the tongue, second that's related to the, to the limbs. So what's the first one? very good so the first thing that you do as far as the tongue is concerned that if you get angry you say A'udhu that's the first step second step within the category of the tongue yes the ca- second step is that you should remain quiet you don't say anything why why should you remain quiet why should you just hmm. that's right because if you open your mouth while you're angry you might say something that you're going to regret. Because when you're angry, your control over yourself, over your tongue, is weak, it's not strong. And so your tongue, if it's let loose, when you're angry, it might end up expressing something that you're later on going to regret. That's as far as your tongue is concerned. How about your physical body? What's the guidelines that have been mentioned in the Sunnah as far as your physical limbs are concerned if you're still angry after having sat down then then lie down. So the Sunnah teaches us that as far as the limbs are concerned if you're angry then sit down and if that and if you're still angry then lie down if it is the case that the anger hasn't subsided after you've been angry then you need to lie down. After you've sat down, sorry, then you need to lie down. Sorry? Allahu alam. Allahu alam. Allahu alam. Allahu alam. Allahu Tayyib. So that was the 15th hadith, 16th hadith. Today we're going to look at the 17th hadith. This is the hadith of Abu Ya'la Shaddad ibn Aws Who said that the Messenger said Who's going to read it? Anybody besides The regular people Anybody besides the regular people This hadith Who can complete the hadith Inna allaha kataba al ihsan ala kulli shay. Akmil فإذا قتلتم فأحسن القتلة ثم وإذا ذبحتم فأحسن الذبحة ها بعدين لا <تكلم> You got the phone in your hand <تكلم> وليحد أحدكم شفرته وليرح ذبيحته رواه مسلم This hadith here is divided, its explanation is divided into five parts. Number one, the messenger says the hadith, the translation of the hadith being Indeed Allah has prescribed ihsan upon everything, ihsan to do things well upon everything. So if you kill, then kill well and if you slaughter then slaughter well. And let each one of you sharpen his blade, his knife and let him spare suffering for the thing, the one that he is sacrificing, the thing that he is sacrificing. So part number one, the messenger says in this hadith, indeed, Allah has prescribed. He has prescribed ihsan upon everything. Ihsan to do things well perfect things, to do things well Shaykh Abd al he says ihsan, isa'a. ihsan is the opposite of Isaa. Isaa to do things badly to do things in a bad way and when the messenger says indeed Allah has prescribed Ihsan this means that Allah has legislated it and he's made it an obligation He's made, it, he's made it mandatory. Allah has prescribed ihsan for every single thing. Allah has made ihsan doing things well and proper upon every single thing. He's made it obligatory. He's made it mandatory. I.e. it is a religious and legislative uh, obligation. And ihsan, doing things well. It is in reference to doing things well towards humans and doing things well as far as animals are concerned. So, your dealing with others is general, applicable to animals and applicable to human beings. This is the first part. Second part is that the Messenger alayhi salatu was salam. He now gives an example. He gives an example of ihsan, gives an example of being good, being uh, uh, good, merciful, good and merciful when a person is slaughtering. And that is by a person sharpening the knife, slaughtering an animal, for example. Slaughtering an animal a person should sharpen his knife Before he slaughters the animal why? Why? Because you're sparing the animal from suffering if it is the case that you don't sharpen the knife and that's gonna result in what? Suffering towards the animal and harm towards the animal and harm that isn't necessary and therefore that is what that is 'ah. That is dealing and yeah, interacting with that animal, dealing with that animal, behaving towards that animal in a, in a harmful manner, in a bad manner. And therefore, sharpening the knife, the Messenger, والسلام, as an example, he tells us to sharpen our knife when we slaughter the animal. Why? Because that is ihsan. That is being good and kind towards, towards the animal. Third part. In the third part, Shaykh Abdul Masna Abbad he makes a quote from Ibn Rajab al Hanbali Rahimahullah in al Alumi Wal Hikam. So Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali he says that this hadith it indicates the obligation in observing ihsan, in observing goodness, kindness, in observing perfection, in doing things well, in all of the actions. The Messenger والسلام, made an example of ihsan towards animals. Ihsan towards the one that is killed justifiably in an Islamic country at the hands of an Islamic government. For example, capital punishment. that occur, And this capital punishment, it occurs not just in Muslim countries, it occurs in non-Muslim countries as well. So, this type of Ihsan should be observed towards animals when they are being slaughtered. And likewise, the government and those that are deputized by the government uh, to carry out the capital punishment, they should likewise observe Ihsan. They should likewise observe this Ihsan when they are implementing that capital punishment. But that's just an example. Of ihsan, ya'ani doing things well. But ihsan, it applies in all of one's actions. And it, it applies as far as the obligations are concerned. So, for example, when a person prays salah, the wajibat of that salah, the obligations of that salah, you should perform them well. And that, ya'ani, the fulfillment of that obligation, ihsan in the fulfillment of that obligation. It is no doubt wajib because the action is wajib. In the salah there are mustahabbat, there are uh, recommended deeds, recommended actions. They are not wajib. Like for example, du'a al istiftah, the opening du'a. And likewise, a person raising his hands when he gets up from he uh, rises from ruku', and so on and so forth. Raf' al in those situations. They are from the sunan. A person he does so. Then that is his, the perfection of his salah. It is the perfection of his salah. A person should have ihsan when he does those things. He should do those things well. Likewise, in terms of his mu'amalat, his dealing with others, there are those things that when a person engages in, as far as the dealings with others are concerned, it is wajib. Those things that are wajib, for example, Loving for your brother, that which you love for yourself. Is it something that is mustahab or is it something that is wajib? Wajib, how do you you know that? What's the proof? There's a hadith, what's the wording of the hadith? None of you truly believes, none of you has Iman. Meaning none of you has attained the obligatory perfection of a person's Iman up until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself so the fact that the prophet said la yu'minu none of you has the obligatory perfection of iman indicates that as far as your muamala with your brother is concerned loving for him what you love for yourself is wajib you have to do it so a person he should have ihsan in that regard he should do that well he should love for his brother that which he loves for himself well But then you have those other things that are supererogatory, optional. You don't have to do it, but they they are the perfections and they are the completions of loving your brother. Like for example, smiling in the face of your brother. Is it wajib? Do you have to smile in the face of your brother? All the time, every time? You don't have to, obviously. But when you do smile in the face of your brother, that is what that is considered صداقة. as the messenger والسلام, he told us that to see your brother and to meet your brother with a smiling countenance with a smiling face is صداقة. so when a person does do that then do it well you smile in the face of your brother do it well don't do one of those half-hearted smiles if you want to observe ihsan towards your brother Ihsan, that type of Ihsan that is now mustahab, that is supererogatory. Do it well. So the point being here is that Ibn Rajba, rahimahullah ta'ala, is now is saying that Ihsan is Ihsan in those matters that are obligatory. And likewise, Ihsan in those matters that are mustahab. Doing things well in those matters that are obligatory. and Likewise, doing well in those matters that are recommended. Tayyib, part number four. Part number four. So, Ihsan, as far as the example that has been mentioned in the hadith, the example that has been mentioned in the hadith is Ihsan in killing. Ihsan in killing, killing well. And that is something that is sought in all forms of allowed killing. You have the allowed killing, that is the killing of animals, the slaughter of animals. For example, a person slaughters an animal in order to eat it. So a person slaughters it, he should do so with Ihsan, do it well meaning spare the animal from suffering sharpen the knife that he's gonna use that's one type of killing another type of killing is the killing of the enemy combatant. you're on a battlefield in a conventional war situation you have the enemy in Islam What is legislated is ihsan, even towards your enemy. This hadith indicates ihsan towards even the enemy that is trying to kill you. So you're a soldier on the battlefield and based upon this hadith, you're not allowed to start mutilating him. You're not allowed to... To start, يعani, uh, uh, giving him a slow, painful, agonizing death. Those people that are fighting you, they might have that intent. Those that might be enemies to you, fighting you on a battlefield, in a conventional war situation. We're not, we're not talking about us, British citizens revolting against the British government, for example. There is no harm that, the, number one, there is no harm that the British government is doing upon the Muslims of this country anyhow. But we're talking about a conventional war situation. For example, you belong to a Muslim country and you're a soldier enlisted in the army of that Muslim country. The leader of that country has said that you need to go and fight the Khawarij. The Khawarij. Those that are represented in our era by people such as ISIS, for example. Now we know that ISIS, they mutilate. We know that ISIS the way that they kill is not something that is legislated in the Sharia, slow, painful death. That is not something that is legislated in the Sharia. They might want to kill you like that you as per the sunnah as a soldier in a Muslim army for a legitimate government are not allowed to do the same to them. Rather, you meant to spare them from painful suffering your point is to defend yourself and to kill those that are trying to kill you but it isn't such that you're meant to mutilate them and harm them that is as far as the battlefield is concerned likewise the Muslim government no doubt the Muslim government in a Muslim country when they carry out the hudud the uh, the corporal Punishments and their capital punishments. When they carry out the hudud, those hudud are meant to be carried out with ihsan, with this ihsan that the Messenger والسلام, is commanding us with. So, when it is the case that they execute the one that deserves execution in a Muslim government with the Muslim authority, they execute him for, for example, having committed the act of murder then that execution has to occur with the least amount of pain unlike other nations today who also have capital punishment but the manner that they adopt is a very slow agonizing form of execution for example the electric chair a person frying in that chair for long extended periods of time or for example lethal injection and other examples that I can't think of from the top of my head lethal injection uh, electric chair and so on and so forth these type of, mechan- these type of uh, methods of execution they are not what they, that is not generally how the Islamic execution occurs in Muslim countries as far as capital punishment is concerned the sword is investigated, it's examined, it's looked at, is it sharp? is it going to cause suffering to the criminal that is being punished what are the exemptions are there exemptions yes from them is from what we mentioned before the stoning of the adulterer or the adulteress they are stoned to death but as we mentioned before al islam ibn Taymiyyah he said nobody since the dawn of Islam until this day of ours until the day of Ibn Taymiyyah has ever had this punishment executed upon them as a result of four witnesses coming and bearing witness to the act of penetration having occurred. Rather, on the most part, it was as a result of al people admitting to have committed the act of uh, adultery themselves. Even though the Islamic law says, better for a person to make tawbah, to repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then do righteous deeds. But the point being, That's one of the exemptions. The stoning of the adulterer or the adulteress. Likewise, the like-for-like principle. Somebody commits an act of murder and he commits it in a certain way, then there is a punishment whereby he is executed in a similar manner. Or the corporal punishment that that is applied upon him it's the same type of harm that he did to somebody else like the like in the time of the messenger alayhi salatu salam, when a Jewish man not, a critic, not, not to say that all Jews are like this but there happened to have been a Jewish man who crushed the head of a young woman between two stones didn't cause her to die as a result of it but he uh, hurt her and he caused her to be hurt by crushing her head between two stones. So now when this man was caught for having committed this crime, then the messenger alayhi salatu ordered that this man, his head is also crushed in a similar way. Uh, That narration there being recorded in uh, Al-Bukhari wa Muslim. Likewise, uh, the story of the Urniyeen Recorded in the two sahihs of Imam al-Bukhari and Muslim. They were a people who embraced Islam. They embraced Islam. And the Messenger alayhi salatu Gave them. Uh, some, uh, some sheep. Or some goats. And he also provided them with a the shepherd. Later on these people became ill. Once they had recovered. They ended up apostating from islam and killing the shepherd of the messenger alayhi salatu that he provided them with so once uh, they were caught and they uh, uh, mutilated the eyes this is the point they mutilated the eyes of the shepherd so therefore the messenger alayhi salatu he applied the same punishment upon them that before they were executed he had their eyes mutilated as well. Why? Because they did the same thing to the shepherd. So the general rule somebody commits an act whereby he is meant to be punished, his hand is meant to be chopped by a Muslim government. We're not talking about people taking the law into their own hands and being vigilantes. A Muslim government chops the hand of the one who has been convicted of theft. Mercy is meant to be applied. Ihsan is meant to be applied to that criminal. You're not meant to make it a laborious, long, agonizing form of chopping. Where it's like you're cutting bread. But rather it's a chop. It's not slice. It's not, it's a chop if you know what I mean. It's not like you cut bread or you cut something else. It's a chop with a sharp sword or a sharp device. Likewise, the execution process. Ihsan is meant to be observed. Goodness and mercy is meant to be observed. And not ta'zeeb, not agonizing, excruciating pain, and mutilation. Such that a person ensures that the sword is sharp, or the device is sharp. And that he's spared of any unnecessary suffering. Are there exemptions to it? Yes, there are exemptions. Like, for example, adultery and fornication, uh, adultery. And likewise, when uh, a person commits a certain act of a certain crime uh, whereby he harms someone else, either by harming them or by killing them. That harm that he did, then it is allowed for the Islamic government to apply the same type of harm to him. So if he mutilated the eyes of someone, then the same thing to him. If he chopped up the arms and the legs of someone, then the same thing to, to him. <inaudible> Part number five is a summary. So number one, wujub al-ihsan fi kulli the obligation of ihsan in every single thing. Number two, the obligation of ihsan when killing in the easiest, uh, the easiest way by which the blood is going to be spilled, i.e. the one that is the least painful for that particular animal or for that particular person. Number three, wujub al-ihsan عند ذبح The obligation of ihsan when slaughtering the animal and number four that the device the the device that is used to slaughter is to be examined before it is used before you use the knife before you use that particular device to slaughter to kill examine it based upon the hadith of the messenger and let each one of you sharpen his knife and let him spare the the from suffering. Can we repeat number two, please? The obligation of killing in the least painful way. Okay? Tayyip. <todic> hadith number 18. Hadith number 18. This hadith is a tremendous hadith. Hadith of Abiyadhar <todic> radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Likewise, the hadith of Muadi bin Jabal I'll start off the hadith and let's see how many people remember this hadith ittaqillaha haythuma ittaqillaha haythuma kunt fear Allah wherever you may be wa atbii as-sayi'ata al-hasanata tamhuha and follow up an evil deed with a good deed it will, it will wipe it out الناس, not in this hadith and interact with people with good manners again fear Allah عبالله, wherever you may be and follow up an evil deed with a good deed it will wipe it away and follow, uh, and interact with people with good manners. This hadith, its explanation is divided into five parts. Part number one, part number one. This hadith, it consists, of that which is required from a Muslim as far as his relationship with his Lord is concerned as far as his relationship with himself is concerned and as far as his relationship with others are concerned this hadith the ulama, they say it has combined Usul mu'amala. it has gathered together the foundations of mu'amalah, the foundations of interaction. You either interact with Allah or you interact with yourself or you interact with everybody else. So this had this hadith has gathered together. These three things and it has mentioned how those three mu'amalat should you should engage in them, how you should engage in those Three Mu'amalat Mu'amala with Allah, Mu'amala with yourself, and Mu'amala with other people, other, others. This hadith is Azim. This hadith, Allah's Messenger alayhi salatu was salam, he made this statement when he was seeing off Mu'adi ibn Jabal radiallahu ta'ala. Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu ta'ala. عن. He is now about to set off on a journey to where? To Yemen in order to preach to give da'wah to teach so now he's going off on a journey and thus the messenger alayhi salatu advises him and he advises him with these three things and look at, look at how jami, how comprehensive how all inclusive this statement of the messenger is muadh bin jabal is going off on a journey and thus he's going to interact he's going to interact on his journey with, with Allah, no doubt, with Himself and with other people. He's going to engage in all three. And therefore, the Messenger والسلام, is, that, is giving Him advice that is relevant to all of those three forms of interaction. So, the first form of advice that He says to Him is, Ittaqillaha Haythuma kunta. Ittaqillah wherever you are. Have taqwa of Allah wherever you are. A taqwa linguistically is an yajal al wa baina le diya baina le diya hafu wikayatan taqihi minhu. A taqwa linguistically in the Arabic language literally means this that you place between yourself and the 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 thing that you fear, a barrier that you place between yourself and the thing that you fear, a barrier. A barrier that is going to protect you from the thing that you fear. Who can repeat the definition of taqwa, linguistic definition of taqwa? Put your hand up. Put your hand up if you can repeat the definition of taqwa. The linguistic definition of taqwa. Did you raise your hand, yeah? (laughs) To place. Excellent, you've got to start it. To place. Yeah? To place a barrier between yourself and the one you fear, or the thing that you fear. The thing that you fear. Very good. Anybody else? So that everybody goes home having memorized the linguistic meaning of Taqwa. Ah, that's naqish. That's deficient now. He he nailed it on the head. (laughs) We didn't say that, huh? To place a barrier between between yourself and the thing that you fear so that it protects you from the thing that you fear protects you from the thing that you fear that's what it linguistically means that is what it linguistically means مثل اتخاذ النعال والخفاف للوقاية مما يكون في الأرض من ضرر such as uh, 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 using نعال uh, يعني sandals and خفاف يعني um, socks as a as a protection from the thing that may harm your feet on the ground so now when a person he is putting on sandals putting on good strong socks he is using them as a form of taqwa as a form of as a barrier a barrier that is placed to prevent the things on the ground harming his feet There are harmful things on the ground, pebbles, stones, glass, things like this, sharp toys for example, or sharp things. You put on your sandals, why? Because those sandals are going to, they're going to be a taqwa for you, a barrier for you, a barrier that you've placed between you and the thing that you fear. What's the thing that you fear? Stones. What's the thing that you fear? Dirt and filth. You fear that, you don't want that to touch your feet, so you've put the sandals, you've put the shoes, you've put the socks there to be a waqaya, a barrier between you and between the thing that you fear, to protect you from being harmed by those things. Does that example make the linguistic meaning of taqwa clear? Tamar. So now as far as the sharia is concerned, as far as the sharia is concerned, that is what's the thing that you fear now we're talking in the islamic sense of the word what's the thing that you're scared of what's the thing that you fear allah and more specifically huh? the of Allah, the of allah the punishment of allah the penalty of allah that's the thing that you fear you fear jahannam you fear al you fear the horrors of Yawm Al Qiyamah, the horrors of Yawm Al Qiyamah. So the Adab of Allah is what you fear, and therefore you want to place a barrier between yourself and the Adab of Allah. And this barrier is gonna is gonna protect you from the Adab of Allah. It's gonna prevent the Adab of Allah from reaching you. So what is this barrier that you place? How do you place this barrier? What does this barrier consist of? This barrier that is going to prevent the adab of Allah or is going to protect you from the adab of Allah? What is this barrier that is going to protect you from the adab of Allah? What is this taqwa essentially? Ibadah, hmm. very good. Could you elaborate upon that a bit more? worship yeah the worship that you do that makes Allah pleased yes yes that's very good so that's so basically doing those good deeds that Allah is pleased with and what else very good staying away from those things that will bring about Allah's anger against you Mannerisms—that is part and parcel of it, yeah. Istighfar, <تصفيق> yeah, that's part and parcel of it. Know you. Knowing Allah is watching you—that that, oh, that goes inside of it. نعم بس هذا يعتبر من من المراقبة هذا يعتبر من الإحسان يدخل من يعني في باب العبادة. Taqwa, تعريف تعريف التقوى. التقوى, what is it defined as? One of the تابعين by the name of Talq ibn Habib, this تابعي he defined Taqwa. And it is the following That you obey Allah. That you obey Allah. Just as Ridwan said. Just as Ridwan said. That it is doing those things that make Allah pleased with you. So Talqib ibn Habib he says that you fulfill the obligations, you fulfill the commands, fulfill the obligations, you fulfill the commands. nur min Allah, upon light from Allah, upon nur from Allah, meaning upon iman, so that you so you obey Allah, you do those things that Allah has told you to do. You pray, for example, what's the thing that's making you pray? Noor from Allah. What's this noor? Iman. Iman Allah has made you pray. Hoping in the reward of Allah. That's one part of the definition. There's two parts to it. That's one part. That you obey. And ta'mal bi awamir ala nurim min allah raja'a thawabillah an ta'amal ala awamirillah ala nurim min allah raja'a that you fulfill the commands of Allah act upon the commands of Allah upon nur from Allah meaning upon iman You're not doing it just because it's a habit you're not doing it just because it's the culture You're doing it out of Iman knowing that this is an act that Allah will reward me for if I'm mukhlis, and It's in accordance with the Sunnah And you do so out of hope in the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala It's gonna come in two seconds the meaning of the second part of the definition is that you leave that which Allah has prohibited you from. You leave that which Allah has prohibited you from. على نور من الله Upon light from Allah. مخافة عذاب الله Out of fear of the عذاب of Allah. أن تجتنب min نواه الله أن تجتنب من نواه الله على نور من الله مخافة عذاب الله that's the second part that you keep away. So, so why are we saying this? Why are we talking about this definition? Because we're talking about a barrier that we, that we need to set up between us and the qabr We're talking about a barrier that we, what we need to set up between us and the ghus, the horrors and the fright and the terror and the punishment of Yawm Al Qiyamah. We're talking about a barrier that we need to set up between us and Jahannam. So what is that barrier? Physically, how, what does that barrier look like? Physically, I mean, how do we implement that barrier? What do we need to do in order to, to have that barrier? Ah, We need to do this. This thing that Talq bin Habib mentioned, this thing that Shaykh Ridwan summarized for us. To obey Allah out of Iman, hoping in the reward of Allah. To keep away from the muharramat those things that Allah has prohibited out of Iman fearing the azab of Allah. This is basically taqwa. This is basically mada taqwa. So the messenger alayhi salatu was salam. He says to Mu'adh bin Jabal تعالى, Have this taqwa of Allah wherever you are. and How relevant it is. Taqwa of Allah wherever you are, whether it is the case that you are on land, whether it is the case that you're on that you're on at sea on a ship, whether it's the case that you're up in the air, flying in altitude in an aeroplane, regardless of where you are, whether you're a muqeem resident in your hometown, whether you're a musafir, Someone that is traveling, have taqwa of Allah wherever you are. And how relevant it is that this advice is given when a person is going on a journey, as the ulama they mentioned. Why is it so relevant? What's so significant about when a person goes on a journey? Why should, when you give advice to somebody when they're going on a journey, why is it the case that taqwa is telling him to have taqwa of Allah wherever he's going to be why is it so relevant when a person is going on a journey obviously have taqwa of Allah wherever you are but why why is it very relevant when a person is going on a journey sorry he might not come back but you might not live to see tomorrow even if you're muqim even if you're resident there's something that is quite significant about when you're going to go on a journey He's going to come across things that he's never come across before with, in the right direction. If he lives in Bolton, he knows what's expected. But if he goes, to, goes out of his town, meet different people, circumstances that are, might arise that he's not used to, and he might act out of character. Okay, I can see what you're saying, but I'm trying to get something else. He might be influenced differently. That's similar to what the brother mentioned. Yeah, basically that. If you're going to be somewhere that isn't your hometown, nobody knows you there. Unless you might find, generally speaking, a person, he's away from home, he goes to a different town, far from Lancashire. He goes to, I don't know, Dorset or Gloucestershire or somewhere where most likely no one's going to really know you. It goes to the Shetland Islands or somewhere like that. No one's really going to know you there. So there your guard might drop. And people might start behaving in a way that is different to how he usually behaves when he's at home. In Bolton, in Nelson, in Lancashire, in Yorkshire. Different. Why? Because no one's there to take him to account as Adam said. When you're outside in a different town, maybe your guard might drop and your akhlaq and your adab and the way that you conduct yourself isn't the same as it is back home. Back home in town, everybody knows you. So mashallah, well-mannered person, respectable, very patient, very well-mannered. Now you're on a journey and you've gone to I don't know, Jono Groats for example, up in the north and there's nobody there, just a few tourists. Some of the tourists they, um, you get into some type of, I don't know, confrontation with them and you start acting in a way that you don't usually do. Or you're up at some service station, somewhere in Glasgow, for example. You're at some service station and the person shortchanges you at the service station. Next thing you know, you start, you know, getting angry. What are you doing? Short shortchange me. Do you know who I am? And All these type of things. You'd never ever do that in Bolton. Why? Because everybody will say, look, this is your adab, this is your akhlaq and so on and so forth. So that's why it's very, very relevant. That when a person is going on a journey, he advises or he's advised about having taqwa of Allah, having fear of Allah, wherever you're going to be. You're going to be somewhere where people aren't going to pull you up. You're going to be in a place where you know if you mess up, it's only going to be for a day or two and then you're going to come back home. No one's ever going to know fear Allah even when you're there and nobody knows you why because I think as the brother mentioned or one of the brothers mentioned just because nobody else is watching you it does not mean that Allah isn't watching you. Allah is watching you wherever you are and therefore the ulama they say the best wife and the best zajir, the, 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 the best um, admonisher And the best thing that, it causes you, um, the best admonisher and the best thing that will hold you back and prevent you from doing those things that you shouldn't be doing is what? Muraqaba of Allah. Being conscious that Allah is watching you. I think one of the brothers in the back mentioned it, that brother there. You mentioned it, didn't you? being conscious of the fact that allah is watching you that is the best and the best zajir, the best admonisher and the best thing that will um it's going to uh caution you and it's going to uh you know if you make a mistake it's going to say hey fix yourself up fix yourself up the best and the best zājir is muraqaba of allah Yes, certain khutbahs, certain sermons, certain lectures, certain uh, books, uh, certain company. They are nice reminders and they are nice uh, admonishers. But the best one, better than any khutbah, better than any book, better than anything, is what? Muraqab of Allah. You have to obviously concentrate, you have to think about it. Allah is actually watching me right now. Right now, if nobody is here, Allah is actually seeing me and he's, he's close to me. He sees me, He's here, He hears me. He, Jalla Wa'ala, who is above His arsh. That is the best wa'id and that is the best sajr. So when a person bears that in mind, then if he goes off on a journey and He's by Himself and He's in wherever it may be, by himself, in a hotel, in, uh, up in the highlands, for example. Nobody knows him. Very likely, he's going to meet somebody that knows him. He's in a hotel or he's out in the streets with the tourists and what have you. The best wa'id that he can have and the best zajid that he can have is muraqabah of Allah, being conscious that Allah is seeing him, hearing him right now. So that is why this particular Advice is very, 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 very relevant in all situations and in all cases, and specifically when a person is going, going on a journey. So I think we'll conclude at this particular point. So unless something needs to be clarified, repeated, corrected, then uh, then we'll close now. Nothing? You're going to ask something else. Yeah, so the Messiah والسلام, said, Taqwa hahuna, taqwa hahuna, taqwa Piety is here, piety is here, piety is here. He's pointing towards his heart, meaning the foundation, the asl, the root, from where taqwa branches forth from is the heart. It isn't the case that what is required for you is taqwa sinai, artificial taqwa, just in the exterior. No. It starts, it, 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 the root of it and the foundation of it is in the heart, but if it's in the heart, then it is obviously going to manifest itself upon the tongue and on the limbs. And that's why the Messenger, والسلام, he said, Indeed, in the body there is a morsel of flesh, a piece of flesh. If it is sound, then the whole body is sound. And if it is corrupt, and the whole body is corrupt, he said indeed it is the heart. So if the heart has taqwa, then yes, it will become manifest upon the limbs and upon the tongue. If the heart is devoid of it, then you're not going to find true taqwa being manifest upon the tongue and upon the limbs. So unless anything needs to be corrected or clarified or asked, uh, uh, Sheikh Ridwan, Of fearing Allah when he's on a journey. Okay. Should we ask everybody else? Let's see who's been listening. Eh? So, Sheikh Ridwan, he said, Could you give a brief explanation as to why it is so significant for a person to have taqwa of Allah when he's traveling? So, who would like to give us a brief summary on that? Mm. I think everybody has been listening but uh, maybe it's uh, a bit too much for them Khalas. Would you like to give one? Do you know the answer? No? Okay, I thought maybe you're asking for the benefit of others Amar, wanna have a go? Why is it so significant? That when a person's travelling, he should have taqwa of Allah He should have taqwa of Allah in all cases, in all scenarios, in all situations even when you're resident at home What's so significant about having taqwa of Allah when you're away? Home, when you're traveling, Sheikh uh, mm-hmm. So when you're at home, there's people that will, uh, that will. Uh, what was the word that you said? Take you to account, right? They'll pull you up. Say, hey, don't do that. I was watching. Don't do that. Hey, they'll pull you. They'll pull you up. However, when you travel, you may go to a place where nobody knows you. And it's easy to drop your guard and start becoming laxidaisical. Therefore, it's important when you're traveling that you're conscious that Allah is watching you. That you need to put a barrier in front of you and the Adab of Allah by doing the good things and keeping away from the bad things. Is that okay? By what, sorry? By uh, giving up a certain sin. By, okay, giving up a certain sin. Because he hasn't really understood the Hadith. Knowledge of the text of the Sharia do not work by taking a text in isolation. That's what that person is doing. He's taking that particular text where he where it's where the messenger says Taqwa is here. Taqwa is here and he's pointed. the messenger was pointing to his heart. Rather there is a a principle from ulum al hadith called Jam, Harmonization of texts. So all the texts have to be harmonized on that particular topic in order to arrive at a uh, you know conclusive understanding and so therefore that narration about taqwa taqwa is here in the heart is combined with the other hadith that we covered before the fourth hadith that indeed in the heart indeed in the body is a piece of flesh if it is sound and the whole body is sound if it is corrupt that the whole body is corrupt indeed it is the heart so the Prophet he himself is telling us but if taqwa is in the heart, then the rest of the body is going to be sound. If the uh, heart is corrupt and the taqwa in the heart is lacking or it's deficient or it's absent. then that is going to become manifest upon the limbs and upon and upon the tongue. So the person what he's done there, his, his error is that he has taken a hadith in isolation. And he hasn't looked at what the scholars have said concerning the topic. It's the scholars that are able to get those other narrations that are related to the topic, harmonize them, and then draw conclusions from it. A general joke, can't just draw a conclusion by just taking one hadith. What, sorry? Oh, yeah, yeah. Allah in that particular circumstance in that particular narration the the I mean in general capital punishment will not be applied to somebody that doesn't deserve it so if it is the case that uh, because you have to remember they did another crime as well which was apostasy which in an Islamic country does warrant the death penalty but I don't know as to whether or not every single one of those people that belong to that tribe killed the shepherd, or if it was just a few of them. However, we do know that all of them committed a crime that does warrant the death penalty in an Islamic country. Apostasy, yeah. Say that again, sorry. should the Shams, yeah. Allah, I can't comment upon that. I don't know. Yeah? But as far as the judicial law is concerned and that's obviously only applicable to the one that is convicted of that particular crime Does Allah punish a people? Who aren't engaged in a certain in a certain sin? Yes Because of the fact that they didn't enjoy the good and forbid the evil so there's a certain nation Among them are a people who commit a certain crime Allah sends down a specific punishment for that specific crime but those people that didn't engage in that crime, they're also punished. Why? Because they did not enjoy the good and forbid the evil concerning that crime. Don't know if that helps. Yeah. Shaykh uh, Farooq, does that answer your question? Thanks, right. one.: Yes. Allah wa'alam, mm. if it's something that is meant to be set in stone for every single traveler, is it, are you saying that is it from the Sunnah that every single uh, person that goes on journey you have to say this? Is that, is that what your question is? I don't know that to be the case. Generally, the ulama they say it is nice, it is good. They use these type of terms. It is nice, it is good. How appropriate it is for a person to say this. Is it the case that you have to say that before a person goes on a journey? Allahumma, is that what your question is in reference to? Allahu alam, the ulama, they say, it is good, it is, they use those type of terms, it is good, how appropriate, how befitting, how nice, how beautiful it is, for a person to give this type of advice to someone that is, traveling. is it the case that it needs to be set in stone, that every single person that goes on journey, you have to say this? Uh, Allahu alam, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Anything else? You الدعاء يكون do I you cool? You are must so I If he's out of technique and more on the brother he's asking that why is it the case that uh, a person has to be more pious and have more tough when he's when he's when he's traveling المراد ليس بان يجب بانه يجب على الشخص ان يكون اكثر متقيا عندما يكون مسافرا بس بان الاسباب التي يتعرض به يتعرض الشخص يعني اليها عندما يكون مسافرا الاسباب التي يؤدي الى يعني يعني المعاصي والمحرمات الاسباب تكون اكثر ليش لانه ما فيش مراقبه من الناس ما فيش احد يقول يا اخي انتبه اتفل كذا يا اخي انتبه الله يراك ما في احد لانك يعني ربما تكون وحيدا او تكون بعيدا عن الأخوة عن الاخوه وعن الاصحاب المانع كيف المانع هو الخوف من المراقبه من الله هو المانع يعني الاساس كيف عندما تكون يعني عندما يخلو الانسان بنفسه فيعني في لابد ان يكون مراقبه so the brother is basically asking, why is it the case that the person, he is meant to have more taqwa. It's not the case that you meant to have more taqwa when you're traveling, but it's just that the causes and the means of you being of you falling to sin might be more And that you're more exposed to those things that might make you a bit more heedless concerning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because You don't have your friends around you. You don't have your people around you And you're exposed to environments where As the brother mentioned before that you're not used to Perhaps you might be in a situation whereby you might not You might not Yeah, and you be as observant As you would be when you're in your home play, in your home place in your homeland and therefore, as a result of that, when you're by yourself, away from people, away from those people that are going to reprimand you, away from those people that are going to censure you, away from those people that are going to say, "My brother, don't do such and such." Allah is watching you. You're away from them. Now, those means and those causes that might lead you to sinning, they're more so. And therefore, a person, it is appropriate that he is advised when he's traveling to afterqul Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Insha'Allah. Anything else? خلاص ان شاء الله تبارك الله فيكم وصل اللهم على نبينا محمد والحمد لله رب العالمين